Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello everyone, I'm Julie, and here we have episode 304 of Forgotten Classics. Are you ready for the next adventures with the bat? Or I guess I should say, Looking for the Bat? (laughs) By Mary Roberts Reinhardt and Avery Hopwood. Well, this is the right place. First, though, just to keep you busy when you run out of the bat, I have a podcast highlight. This is one that I discovered a long time ago, but there had only been a couple of episodes, and I wanted to wait and see how far ranging it was. It is called the Myths and Legends Podcast. And when I first found it, it had a couple of King Arthur, well, the Knights of the Round Table episodes. It had a couple of Aladdin episodes, and it had one about Mulan. And that was quite interesting because it was about the real Mulan folktale, not the Disney cartoon, of course, or movie. So the contrasts were very interesting. Now there have been about 30 episodes So I can safely say there is a wide range. It is folk tales. It is fairy tales. Well, you know, myths and legends. That pretty much says it. They range from King Arthur, which is being told in bits and pieces scattered around, to Norse mythology, to some Japanese fairy tales, a Grimm's fairy tale, Rapunzel, Korean folk tales, Native American, Latin American. So basically, the host, Jason, is really mixing it up. And even the ones where there is quite a lot of information, or I should say there are quite a few stories to these myths, he's scattering them around. You may have two or three in a row, but then you go into some other things before he comes back to, say, King Arthur. There is also a Monster of the Week. (laughs) And I really love that feature. Now, it can be from all sorts of cultures. It doesn't have to come from the culture that the story of the week is from. So you hear about all these really bizarre monsters that all cultures have dreamed up. And the other thing I need to say is that the host, Jason, has a very winning way. He tells the stories really well, but he contemporizes them slightly so that when you're listening to something and thinking a talking shoe, hmm, that's the kind of thing he'll be saying at the same time. He doesn't take the heart out of it. You still love the story itself. And though he does occasionally look at something and say, well, from today's perspective, we'd look at something like this. He does it lightly enough that it doesn't really ruin the story. I prefer not to have my stories have that done to them, as we can tell from the bat with Billy, the Japanese. But, you know, it's a fair perspective. And he's not hammering it, you know, by saying they're stupid. He's just saying we think differently now. So definitely give that a try. Now, let's talk about the bat, the first couple of chapters. What we discovered, of course, is that unlike the white mall, where she was vilified to the public but really had a heart of gold, or even Batman, who we heard um, Bob Kane, the creator of Batman, took the idea of the bat and his costume, and that went into the making of Batman, he's got a heart of gold. The bat sounds like he's truly evil. There are dead bodies everywhere. There are crimes everywhere. He doesn't even have a girlfriend, for heaven's sake. I mean, come on. And he just sounds like somebody that we want to see go down. I really liked when they're setting up the background and you're seeing how it's affecting everything in that, you know, the Broadway shows are doing review numbers that have (laughs) everybody dressed as the bat and they're doing a chorus line. Evil was trendy back then, just like it can be these days. People just don't change that much, do they? And I really do like the fact that up against the bat, we have elderly, proper Cornelia Van Gorder. 
And in getting to know her, what we did get to see is that she's got immense common sense. I loved it when she was thinking about Dale and said, youth hasn't changed, even if it's cut its hair. Yes, people are still people. She can still understand her niece, even though her niece's mother can't understand her. And Lizzie. Okay, Lizzie is just fun. Lizzie is the best comic relief ever, and you kind of need it. It gets pretty heavy duty, and the mysterious atmosphere is going to get thicker and thicker. So we need someone to kind of make a step back and take a laugh every so often. And I will say that the very last thing I love is that Cornelia Van Gorder wanted adventure. She realized how safe her life had been. She realized because she was a girl, she wasn't allowed to do all the adventurous stuff she thought of. And this is her big chance. And of course, that's going to drive everything because she's going to inject herself into any danger, any adventure, much more than the average person would. So we have our trajectory. We know she's going to intersect with the bat or it wouldn't be called that and she wouldn't be there with her sense of adventure. How soon will she meet him? Let's dive in. The Bat by Mary Roberts Reinhardt and Avery Hopwood Chapter 3 Pistol Practice She knew who it was, of course. The Bat, no doubt of it. And yet... Did the bat ever threaten before he struck? She could not remember. But it didn't matter. The bat was unprecedented, unique. At any rate, bat or no bat, she must think out a course of action. The defection of cook and housemaid left her alone in the house with Lizzie and Billy. And Dale, of course, if Dale returned. Two old women, a young girl, and a Japanese butler to face the most dangerous criminal in America, she thought grimly. And yet, one couldn't be sure. The threatening letter might be only a joke, a letter from a crank, after all. Still, she must take precautions, look for aid somewhere. But where could she look for aid? She ran over in her mind the new acquaintances she had made since she moved to the country. There was Dr. Wells, the local physician who had joked with her about moving into the bat's home territory. He seemed an intelligent man, but she only knew him slightly. She couldn't call a busy doctor away from his patients to investigate something which might only prove to be a mare's nest. The boys Dale had met at the country club. Huh, she sniffed. I'd rather trust my gumption than any of theirs. The logical person to call on, of course, was Richard Fleming, Courtly Fleming's nephew and heir, who had rented her the house. He lived at the country club. She could probably reach him now. She was just on the point of doing so when she decided against it, partly from delicacy, partly from an indefinable feeling that he would not be of much help. Besides, she thought sturdily, it's my house now, not his. He didn't guarantee burglar protection in the lease. As for the local police, her independence revolted at summoning them. They would bombard her with ponderous questions and undoubtedly think she was merely a nervous old spinster. If it was just me, she thought, I swear I wouldn't say a word to anybody, and if the bat flew in, he mightn't find it so easy to fly out again if I am sixty-five and never shot a burglar in my life. But there's Dale and Lizzie. I've got to be fair to them. For a moment, she felt very helpless, very much alone. Then her courage returned. Pshaw, Cornelia, if you have to get help, get the help you want and hang the consequences, she adjured herself. You've always hankered to see a first-class detective do his detecting. Well, get one, or decide to do the job yourself. I bet you could at that. She tiptoed to the main door of the living room and closed it cautiously, smiling as she did so. Lizzie might be about, and Lizzie would promptly go into hysterics if she got an inkling of her mistress's present intentions. Then she went to the city telephone and asked for a long distance.
When she had finished her telephoning, she looked at once relieved and a little naughty, like a demure child who has carried out some piece of innocent mischief unobserved. My stars, she muttered to herself, you can never tell what you do until you try. Then she sat down again and tried to think of other measures of defense. Now, if I were the bat, or any criminal, she mused, how would I get into this house? Well, that's it. I might get in most anyway. It's so big and rambling. All the grounds you want to lurk in, too. It'd take a company of police to shut them off. Then there's the house itself. Let's see, third floor, trunk rooms, servants' rooms. Couldn't get in there very well, except with a pretty long ladder. That's all right. Second floor. Well, I suppose a man could get into my bedroom from the porch if he were an acrobat. But he'd need to be a very good acrobat, and there's no use borrowing trouble. Downstairs is the problem, Cornelia. Downstairs is the problem. Take this room now. She rose and examined it carefully. There's the door over there on the right that leads into the billiard room. There's this door over here that leads into the hall. Then there's that other door by the alcove. Ah, and all those French windows. Phew! She shook her head. It was true. The room in which she stood, while comfortable and charming, seemed unusually accessible to the night prowler. A row of French windows at the rear gave upon a little terrace. Below the terrace, the drive curved about and beneath the billiard-room windows in a hairpin loop, drawing up again at the main entrance on the other side of the house. At the left of the French windows, if one faced the terrace, as Miss Cornelia was doing, was the alcove door of which she spoke. When open, it disclosed a little alcove, almost entirely devoted to the foot of a flight of stairs that gave direct access to the upper regions of the house. The alcove itself opened on one side upon the terrace and upon the other into a large butler's pantry. This arrangement was obviously designed so that, if necessary, one could pass directly from the terrace to the downstairs service quarters, or the second floor of the house, without going through the living room, and so that trays could be carried up from the pantry by the side stairs without using the main staircase. The middle pair of French windows were open, forming a double door. Miss Cornelia went to them, shut them, tried the locks. Huh, flimsy enough she thought. Then she turned toward the billiard-room. The billiard-room, as has been said, was the last room to the right in the main wing of the house. A single door led to it from the living-room. Miss Cornelia passed through this door, glanced about the billiard-room, noting that most of its windows were too high from the ground to greatly encourage a marauder. She unlocked the only one that seemed to her particularly tempting, the billiard-room window on the terrace side of the house. Then she returned to the living-room and again considered her defenses. Three points of access from the terrace to the house, the door that led into the alcove, the French windows of the living-room, the billiard-room window. On the other side of the house there was the main entrance, the porch and the library and dining-room windows. The main entrance led into a hall living room, and the main door of the living room was on the right as one entered, the dining room and library on the left, the main staircase in front. My mind is starting to go round like a pinwheel thinking of all these windows and doors, she murmured to herself. She sat down once more, and taking a pencil and a piece of paper, drew a plan of the lower floor of the house. And now I've studied it, she thought after a while. I'm no further than if I hadn't. As far as I can figure out, there are so many ways for a clever man to get into this house that I'd have to be a couple of Siamese twins to watch it properly. The next house I rent in the country, she decided, just isn't going to have any windows and doors, or I'll know the reason why. But of course she was not entirely shut off from the world, even if the worst developed. She considered the telephone instruments on a table near the wall, one general phone, the other connecting a house line which also connected with the garage and the greenhouses. 
The garage would not be helpful, since Slocum, her chauffeur for many years, had gone back to England for a visit. Dale had been driving the car. But with an able-bodied man in the gardener's house, she pulled herself together with a jerk. Cornelia Van Gorder, you're going to go crazy before nightfall if you don't take hold of yourself. What you need is lunch and a nap in the afternoon if you can make yourself take it. You'd better look up that revolver of yours, too, that you bought when you thought you were going to take a trip to China. You've never fired it off yet, but you've got to sometime. There's no way of telling if it will work. You can shut your eyes when you want to. Oh, no, you can't either. That's silly. Call you a spirited old lady, do they? Well, you never had a better time to show your spirit than now. And Miss Van Gorder, sighing, left the living room to reach the kitchen just in time to calm a heated argument between Lizzie and Billy on the relative merits of Japanese and Irish-American cooking. Dale Ogden, taxiing up from the two o'clock train some time later, to her surprise discovered the front door locked and rang for some time before she could get an answer. At last Billy appeared, white-coated, with an inscrutable expression on his face. "'Will you take my bag, Billy? Thanks. Where's Miss Van Gorder? Taking a nap?' "'No,' said Billy succinctly. "'She take no nap. She out in shrubbery shouting.' Dale stared at him incredulously. "'Shooting, Billy?' "'Yes, ma'am. At least she not shoot yet, but she say she going too soon.' But good heavens, Billy, shooting what? Shotting pistol, said Billy, his yellow mask of a face preserving its impish repose. He waved his hand. You go shrubbery, you see. The scene that met Dale's eyes when she finally found the shrubbery was indeed a singular one. Miss Van Gorder, her back firmly planted against the trunk of a large elm tree, and an expression of ineffable distaste on her features, was holding out a blunt, deadly-looking revolver at arm's length. Its muzzle wavered, now pointing at the ground, now at the sky. Behind the tree, Lizzie sat in a heap, moaning quietly to herself, and now and then appealing to the saints to avert a visioned calamity. As Dale approached unseen, the climax came. The revolver steadied, pointed ferociously at an inoffensive grass blade some ten yards from Miss Van Gorder, and went off. Lizzie promptly gave vent to a shrill Irish scream. Miss Van Gorder dropped the revolver like a hot potato and opened her mouth to tell Lizzie not to be such a fool. Then she saw Dale. Her mouth went into a round O of horror, and her hand clutched weakly at her heart. "'Good heavens, child!' she gasped. Didn't Billy tell you what I was doing? I might have shot you like a rabbit. And overcome with emotion, she sat down on the ground and started to fan herself mechanically with a cartridge. Dale couldn't help laughing, and the longer she looked at her aunt, the more she laughed, until that dignified lady joined in the mirth herself. <laughs> aunt Cornelia, Aunt Cornelia, said Dale when she could get her breath. <laughs> that I've lived to see the day, and they call us the wild generation. Why on earth were you having pistol practice, darling? Has Billy turned into a Japanese spy, or what? Miss Van Gorder rose from the ground with as much stateliness as she could muster under the circumstances. No, my dear, but there's no fool like an old fool, that's all, she stated. I've wanted to fire that infernal revolver off ever since I bought it two years ago, and now I have, and I'm satisfied. Still, she went on thoughtfully, picking up the weapon, it seems a very good revolver, and shooting people must be much easier than I supposed. All you have to do is point the, the front of it like this, and— "'Oh, Miss Dale, dear Miss Dale!' came in woebegone accents from the other side of the tree. "'For the love of heaven, Miss Dale, say no more, but take it away from her. She'll have herself all riddled through with bullets like a kitchen sieve, and me too, if she's let to have it again.' "'Lizzie, I'm ashamed of you.' said Lizzie's mistress. "'Come out from behind that tree and stop wailing like a siren.' 
This weapon is perfectly safe in competent hands, and... She seemed on the verge of another demonstration of its powers. Miss Dale, for the dear love of God, will you make her put it away? Dale laughed again. I really think you'd better, Aunt Cornelia, or both of us will have to put Lizzie to bed with a case of acute hysteria. Well, said Miss Van Gorder, perhaps you're right, dear. Her eyes gleamed. I should have liked to try it just once more, though, she confided. I feel certain I could hit that tree over there if my eye wouldn't wink so when the thing goes off. Now it's winking eyes, said Lizzie on a note of tragic chant. But next time it'll be bleeding corpses and... Dale added her own protestations to Lizzie's. Please, darling, if you really want to practice, Billy can fix up some sort of target practice. But I don't want my favorite aunt assassinated by a rickshade bullet before my eyes. Well... Perhaps it would be best to try again another time, admitted Miss Van Gorder. But there was a wistful look in her eyes as she gave the revolver to Dale, and the three started back to the house. I should never have allowed Lizzie to know what I was doing, she confided in a whisper on the way. A woman is perfectly capable of managing firearms, but Lizzie is really too nervous to live sometimes. I know just how you feel, darling, Dale agreed, suppressed mirth shaking her as the little procession reached the terrace. But, oh, <laughs> she could keep it no longer. <laughs> you did look funny, darling, sitting under that tree with Lizzie on the other side of it making banshee noises and... Miss Van Gorder laughed too, a little shamefacedly. I must have, she said. But, oh, you needn't shake your head, Lizzie Allen. I am going to practice with it. There's no reason I shouldn't, and you can never tell when a thing like that might be useful. She ended rather vaguely. She did not wish to alarm Dale with her suspicions yet. There, Dale, yes, put it in the drawer of the table. That will reassure Lizzie. Lizzie, you might make us some lemonade, I think. Miss Dale must be thirsty after her long, hot ride. Yes, Miss Cornelia said Lizzie, recovering her normal calm as the revolver was shut away in the drawer of the large table in the living room. But she could not resist one parting shot. And thank God it's lemonade I'll be making and not bandages for bullet wounds, she muttered darkly as she went toward the service quarters. Miss Van Gorder glared after her departing back. Lizzie is really impossible sometimes, she said with stately ire. Then her voice softened. Though, of course, I couldn't do without her, she added. Dale stretched out on the settee opposite her aunt's chair. I know you couldn't, darling. Thanks for thinking of lemonade. She passed her hand over her forehead in a gesture of fatigue. I am hot and tired. Miss Van Gorder looked at her keenly. The young face seemed curiously worn and haggard in the clear afternoon light. You, you really don't feel very well, do you, Dale? Oh, it's nothing. I feel all right, really. I could send for Dr. Wells if... Oh, heavens no, Aunt Cornelia. She managed a wan smile. It isn't as bad as all that. I'm just tired and the city was terribly hot and noisy and... She stole a glance at her aunt from beneath lowered lids. I got your gardener, by the way, she said casually. Did you, dear? That's splendid, though. But I'll tell you about that later. Where did you get him? That good agency, I can't remember its name. Dale's hand moved restlessly over her eyes as if remembering details were too great an effort. But I'm sure he'll be satisfactory. He'll be out here this evening. He, he couldn't get away before, I believe. What have you been doing all day, darling? Miss Cornelia hesitated. Now that Dale had returned, she suddenly wanted very much to talk over the various odd happenings of the day with her, get the support of her youth and her common sense. Then that independence which was so firmly rooted a characteristic of hers restrained her. No use worrying the child unnecessarily. They all might have to worry enough before tomorrow morning. She compromised. We have had a domestic upheaval, she said. 
The cook and the housemaid have left. If you'd only waited till the next train, you could have had the pleasure of their company into town. Aunt Cornelia, how exciting! I'm so sorry. Why did they leave? Why do servants ever leave a good place? asked Miss Cornelia grimly. Because if they had enough sense to know when they were well off, they wouldn't be servants. Anyhow, they've gone. We'll have to depend on Lizzie and Billy the rest of this week. I telephoned, but they couldn't promise me any others before Monday. And I was in town and could have seen people for you if I'd only known, said Dale remorsefully. Only, she hesitated, I mightn't have had time. At least, I mean, there were some other things I had to do besides getting the gardener. And she rose. I think I will go and lie down for a little, if you don't mind, darling. Miss Van Gorder was concerned. Of course I don't mind, but won't you even have your lemonade? Oh, I'll get some from Lizzie in the pantry before I go up. Dale managed to laugh. I think I must have a headache after all, she said. Maybe I'll take an aspirin. Don't worry, darling. I shan't. I only wish there were something I could do for you, my dear. Dale stopped in the alcove doorway. There's nothing anybody can do for me, really, she said soberly. At least, oh, I don't know what I'm saying. No, don't worry. I'm quite all right. I may go over to the country club after dinner and dance. Won't you come with me, Aunt Cornelia? Depends on your escort, said Miss Cornelia tartly. If our landlord, Mr. Richard Fleming, is taking you, I certainly shall. I don't like his looks, and never did. Dale laughed. Oh, he's all right, she said. Drinks a good deal and wastes a lot of money, but harmless enough. No, this is a very sedate party. I'll be home early. In that case, said her aunt, I shall stay here with Lizzie and my Ouija board. Lizzie deserves some punishment for the very cowardly way she behaved this afternoon, and the Ouija board will furnish it. She's scared to death to touch the thing. I think she believes it's alive. Well, maybe I'll send you a message on it from the country club, said Dale lightly. She had paused halfway up the flight of the side stairs on the alcove, and her aunt noticed how her shoulders drooped, belying the lightness of her voice. Oh! she went on. By the way, have the afternoon papers come yet? I didn't have time to get one when I was rushing for the train. I don't think so, dear, but I'll ask Lizzie. Miss Cornelia moved toward a bell push. Oh, don't bother. It doesn't matter. Only if they have, would you ask Lizzie to bring me one when she brings up the lemonade? I want to read about, about the bat. He fascinates me. There was something else in the paper this morning, said Miss Cornelia idly. Oh, yes, the Union Bank, the bank Mr. Fleming Sr. was president of, has failed. They seem to think the cashier robbed it. Did you see that, Dale? The shoulders of the girl on the staircase straightened suddenly. Then they drooped again. Yes, I saw it, she said in a queerly colorless voice. Too bad, it must be terrible to... To have everyone suspect you and hunt you, as I suppose they're hunting that poor cashier. Well, said Miss Cornelia, a man who wrecks a bank deserves very little sympathy in my way of thinking. But then I'm old-fashioned. Well, dear, I won't keep you. Run along, and if you want an aspirin, there's a box in my top bureau drawer. Thanks, darling. Maybe I'll take one, and maybe I won't. All I really need is to lie down for a while. She moved on up the staircase and disappeared from the range of Miss Cornelia's vision, leaving Miss Cornelia to ponder many things. Her trip to the city had done Dale no good of a certainty. If not actually ill, she was obviously under some considerable mental strain. And why this sudden interest, first in the bat, then in the failure of the Union Bank? Was it possible that Dale, too, had been receiving threatening letters? I'll be glad when the gardener comes, she thought to herself. He'll make a man in the house at any rate. When Lizzie at last came in with the lemonade, she found her mistress shaking her head. Cornelia, Cornelia, she was murmuring to herself. You should have taken to pistol practice when you were younger. It just shows how children waste their opportunities.
Chapter 4 The Storm Gathers The long summer afternoon wore away. Sunset came, red and angry, a sunset presaging storm. A chill crept into the air with the twilight. When night fell, it was not a night of silver patterns in sky, but a dark and cloudy cloak where a few stars glittered fitfully. Miss Cornelia at dinner saw a bat swoop past the window of the dining room in its scurrying flight and narrowly escaped oversetting her water glass with a nervous start. The tension of waiting, waiting, for some vague menace which might not materialize after all had begun to prey on her nerves. She saw Dale off to the country club with relief. The girl looked a little better after her nap, but she was still not her normal self. When Dale was gone, she wandered restlessly for some time between living room and library, now giving an unnecessary dusting to a piece of bric-a-brac with her handkerchief, now taking a book from one of the shelves in the library, only to throw it down before she had read a page. This house was queer. She would not have admitted it to Lizzie for her soul's salvation, but for the first time in her sensible life she listened for creakings of woodwork, rustling of leaves, stealthy steps outside, beyond the safe bright squares of the windows, for anything that was actual, tangible, not merely formless fear. There's too much room in the country for things to happen to you, she confided to herself with a shiver. Even the night. Whenever I look out, it seems to me as if the night were ten times bigger and blacker than it ever is in New York. To comfort herself, she mentally rehearsed her telephone conversation of the morning, the conversation she had not mentioned to her household. At the time, it had seemed to her most reassuring, the plan she had based upon it adequate and sensible in the normal light of day. But now the light of day had been blocked out, and with it, her security. Her plans seemed weapons of paper against the sinister might of the darkness beyond her windows. A little wind wailed somewhere in that darkness like a beaten child. Beyond the hills, thunder rumbled, drawing near, and with it, lightning and the storm. She made herself sit down in the chair beside her favorite lamp on the center table and take up her knitting with stiff fingers. Knit two, purl two. Her hands fell into the accustomed rhythm mechanically. A spy peering in through the French windows would have deemed her the picture of calm. But she had never felt less calm in all the long years of her life. She wouldn't ring for Lizzie to come and sit with her. She simply wouldn't. But she was very glad, nevertheless, when Lizzie appeared at the door. Miss Nellie. Yes, Lizzie. Miss Cornelia's voice was composed, but her heart felt a throb of relief. Can I, can I sit in here with you, Miss Nellie, just a minute? Lizzie's voice was plaintive. I have been sitting out in the kitchen watching that Jap read his funny newspaper the wrong way and listening for ghosts till I'm nearly crazy. Why, certainly, Lizzie, said Miss Cornelia primly. Though, she added doubtfully, I really shouldn't pamper your absurd fears, I suppose, but... Oh, please, Miss Nellie. Very well, said Miss Cornelia brightly. You can sit here, Lizzie, and help me work the Ouija board. That will take your mind off listening for things. Lizzie groaned. You know I'd rather be shot than touch that uncanny Ouija, she said dolefully. It gives me the creeps every time I put my hands on it. Well, of course, if you'd rather sit in the kitchen, Lizzie. Oh, give me the Ouija, said Lizzie in tones of heartbreak. I'd rather be shot and stabbed than stay in the kitchen any more. Very well, said Miss Cornelia. It's your own decision, Lizzie. Remember that. Her needles clicked on. I'll just finish this row before we start, she said. You might call up the light company in the meantime, Lizzie. There seems to be a storm coming, and I want to find out if they intend to turn out the lights tonight as they did last night. Tell them I find it most inconvenient to be left without light that way. It's worse than inconvenient, 
muttered Lizzie. It's criminal, that's what it is, turning off all the lights in a haunted house like this one, as if spooks wasn't bad enough with the lights on. Lizzie? Yes, Miss Nellie, I wasn't going to say another word. She went to the telephone. Miss Cornelia knitted on, knit two, purl two. In spite of her experiments with the Ouija board, she didn't believe in ghosts. And yet... There were things one couldn't explain by logic. Was there something like that in this house? A shadow walking the corridors? A vague shape of evil drifting like mist from room to room till its cold breath whispered on one's back and... There. She had ruined her knitting. The last two rows would have to be ripped out. That came of mooning about ghosts like a ninny. She put down the knitting with an exasperated little gesture. Lizzie had just finished her telephoning and was hanging up the receiver. Well, Lizzie. Yes'm, said the latter, glaring at the phone. That's what he says. They turned off the lights last night because there was a storm threatening. He says it burns out their fuses if they leave them on in a storm. A louder roll of thunder punctuated her words. There said Lizzie. They'll be going off again tonight. She took an uncertain step toward the French windows. Huh, said Miss Cornelia. I hope it will be a dry summer. Her hands tightened on each other. Darkness, darkness inside this house of whispers to match with the darkness outside. <sighs> she forced herself to speak in a normal voice. Ask Billy to bring some candles, Lizzie, and have them ready. Lizzie had been staring fixedly at the French windows. At Miss Cornelia's command, she gave a little jump of terror and moved closer to her mistress. You're not going to ask me to go out in that hall alone, she said in a hurt voice. It was too much. Miss Cornelia found vent for her feelings in crisp exasperation. What's the matter with you, anyhow, Lizzie Allen? The nervousness in her own tones infected Lizzie's. She shivered frankly. Oh, Miss Nellie, Miss Nellie, she pleaded. I don't like it. I want to go back to the city. Miss Cornelia braced herself. I have rented this house for four months, and I am going to stay, she said firmly. Her eyes sought Lizzie's, striving to pour some of her own inflexible courage into the latter's quaking form. But Lizzie would not look at her. Suddenly she started and gave a low scream. There's somebody on the terrace, she breathed in a ghastly whisper, clutching at Miss Cornelia's arm. For a second, Miss Cornelia sat frozen. Then, don't do that, she said sharply. What nonsense! but she looked over her shoulder as she said it, and Lizzie saw the look. Both waited in pulsing stillness. One second. Two. I guess it was the wind, said Lizzie at last, relieved, her grip on Miss Cornelia relaxing. She began to look a trifle ashamed of herself, and Miss Cornelia seized the opportunity. You were born on a brick pavement, she said crushingly. You get nervous out here at night whenever a cricket begins to sing or scrape his legs or whatever it is they do. Lizzie bowed before the blast of her mistress's scorn and began to move gingerly toward the alcove door, but obviously she was not entirely convinced. Oh, it's more than that, Miss Nellie, she mumbled. I... Miss Nellie turned to her fiercely. If Lizzie was going to behave like this, they might as well have it out now between them before Dale came home. What did you really see last night? She said in a minatory tone. The instant relief on Lizzie's face was ludicrous. She so obviously preferred discussing any subject at length to braving the dangers of the other part of the house unaccompanied. I was standing right there. There at the top of that there staircase, she began gesticulating toward the alcove stairs in the manner of one who embarks upon the narration of an epic. Standing there with your switch in my hand, Miss Nellie, and then I looked down and her voice dropped. 
I saw a gleaming eye. It looked at me and winked. I tell you, this house is haunted. A flirtatious ghost, queried Miss Cornelia skeptically. She snorted. Why didn't you yell? I was too scared to yell, and I'm not the only one. She started to back away from the alcove, her eyes still fixed upon its haunted stairs. Why do you think the servants left so sudden this morning? She went on. Do you really believe the housemaid had appendicitis, or the cook's sister had twins? She turned and gestured at her mistress with a long-pointed forefinger. Her voice had a note of doom. I bet a cent the cook never had any sister, and the sister never had any twins, she said impressively. No, Miss Nelly, they couldn't put it over on me like that. They were scared away. They saw it. She concluded her epic and stood nodding her head, an Irish Cassandra who had prophesied the evil to come. Fiddlesticks! said Miss Cornelia briskly, more shaken by the recital than she would have admitted. She tried to think of another topic of conversation. What time is it? she asked. Lizzie glanced at the mantel clock. Half past ten, Miss Nelly. Miss Cornelia yawned a little dismally. She felt as if the last two hours had not been hours, but years. Miss Dale won't be home for half an hour she said reflectively, and if I have to spend another thirty minutes listening to Lizzie shiver, she thought, Dale will find me a nervous wreck when she does come home. She rolled up her knitting and put it back in her knitting bag. It was no use going on doing work that would have to be ripped out again, and yet she must do something to occupy her thoughts. She raised her head and discovered Lizzie returning toward the alcove stairs with the stealthy tread of a panther. The sight exasperated her. Now, Lizzie Allen, she said sharply, you forget all that superstitious nonsense and stop looking for ghosts. There's nothing in that sort of thing. She smiled. She would punish Lizzie for her obdurate timorousness. Where's that Ouija board? She questioned, rising with determination in her eye. Lizzie shuddered. It's up there, with a prayer book on it to keep it quiet, she groaned, jerking her thumb in the direction of the further bookcase. Bring it here, said Miss Cornelia implacably. Then, as Lizzie still hesitated, Lizzie! Shivering, every movement of her body a conscious protest, Lizzie slowly went over to the bookcase, lifted off the prayer book, and took down the Ouija board. Even then, she would not carry it normally, but bore it over to Miss Cornelia at arm's length, as if any closer contact would blast her with lightning, her face a comic mask of loathing and repulsion. She placed the lettered board in Miss Cornelia's lap with a sigh of relief. "'You can do it yourself. I will have none of it,' she said firmly. "'It takes two people, and you know it, Lizzie Allen.' Miss Cornelia's voice was stern." but it was also amused. Lizzie groaned, but she knew her mistress. She obeyed. She carefully chose the farthest chair in the room and took a long time bringing it over to where her mistress sat waiting. I've been working for you for twenty years, she muttered. I've been your goat for twenty years, and I've got a right to speak my mind. Miss Cornelia cut her off. You haven't got a mind. Sit down, she commanded. Lizzie sat, her hands at her sides. With a sigh of tried patience, Miss Cornelia put her unwilling fingers on the little moving table that is used to point to the letters on the board itself. Then she placed her own hands on it, too, the tips of the fingers just touching Lizzie's. Now make your mind a blank, she commanded her factotum. You just said I haven't got any mind, complained the latter. Well, said Miss Cornelia magnificently, make what you haven't got a blank. The repartee silenced Lizzie for the moment, but only 
for the moment. As soon as Miss Cornelia had settled herself comfortably and tried to make her mind a suitable receiving station for Ouija messages, Lizzie began to mumble the sorrows of her heart. I've stood by you through thick and thin, she mourned in a low voice. I stood by you when you were a vegetarian. I stood by you when you were a theosophist. And I seen you through socialism, fletcherism, and rheumatism. But when it comes to carrying on with ghosts, be still, ordered Miss Cornelia. Nothing will come if you keep chattering. That's why I'm chattering, said Lizzie, driven to the whale. My teeth are, too, she added. I can hardly keep my upper set in. And a desolate clicking of artificial molars attested the truth of the remark. Then, to Miss Cornelia's relief, she was silent for nearly two minutes, only to start so violently at the end of the time that she nearly upset the Ouija board on her mistress's toes. "'I've got a queer feeling in my fingers, all the way up my arms,' she whispered in odd accents, wriggling the arms she spoke of violently. "'Hush!' said Miss Cornelia indignantly. Lizzie always exaggerated, of course." Yet now her own fingers felt prickling, uncanny. There was a little pause while both sat tense, staring at the board. Now, Ouija, said Miss Cornelia defiantly, is Lizzie Allen right about this house, or is it all stuff and nonsense? For one second, two, the Ouija remained anchored to its resting place in the center of the board. Then, my God, it's moving! said Lizzie in tones of pure horror as the little pointer began to wander among the letters. You shoved it. I did not cross my heart, Miss Nellie. I... Lizzie's eyes were round, her fingers glued rigidly and awkwardly to the Ouija. As the movements of the pointer grew more rapid, her mouth dropped open, wider and wider, preparing for an ear-piercing scream. Keep quiet, said Miss Cornelia tensely. There was a pause of a few seconds while the pointer darted from one letter to another wildly. B, M, C, X, P, R, S, K, Z, murmured Miss Cornelia, trying to follow the spelled letters. It's Russian! gasped Lizzie breathlessly, and Miss Cornelia nearly disgraced herself in the eyes of any spirits that might be present by inappropriate laughter. The Ouija continued to move. More letters. What was it spelling? It couldn't be. Good heavens. B. A. T. Bat, said Miss Cornelia with a tiny catch in her voice. The pointer stopped moving. She took her hands from the board. "'That's queer,' she said with a forced laugh. She glanced at Lizzie to see how Lizzie was taking it, but the latter seemed too relieved to have her hands off the Ouija board to make the mental connection that her mistress had feared. All she said was, "'Bats, indeed. That shows its spirits. There's been a bat flying around this house all evening.' She got up from her chair tentatively, obviously hoping that the seance was over. "'Oh, Miss Nellie!' she burst out. Please let me sleep in your room tonight. It's only when my jaw drops that I snore I can tie it up with a handkerchief. I wish you'd tie it up with a handkerchief now, said her mistress absent-mindedly, still pondering the message that the pointer had spelled. B-A-T-Bat, she murmured. Thought transference, warning, accident, whatever it was, it was nerve-shaking. She put the Ouija board aside. Accident or not, she was done with it for the evening. But she could not so easily dispose of the bat. Sending a protesting Lizzie off for her reading glasses, Miss Cornelia got the evening paper and settled down to what had by now become her obsession. She had not far to search, for a long black streamer ran across the front page. Bat baffles police again. She skimmed through the article with eerie fascination, reading bits of it aloud for Lizzie's benefit. Unique criminal, long baffled the police, 
record of his crime shows him to be endowed with an almost diabolical ingenuity. So far, there is no clue to his identity. Pleasant reading for an old woman who's just received a threatening letter, she thought ironically. Ah, here was something new in a black-bordered box on the front page, a statement by the paper. She read it aloud. We must cease combing the criminal world for the bat and look higher. He may be a merchant, a lawyer, a doctor, honored in his community by day and at night a bloodthirsty assassin. The print blurred before her eyes. She could read no more for the moment. She thought of the revolver in the drawer of the table close at hand and felt glad that it was there, loaded. I'm going to take the butcher knife to bed with me, Lizzie was saying. Miss Cornelia touched the Ouija board. That thing certainly spelled bat, she remarked. I wish I were a man. I'd like to see any lawyer, doctor, or merchant of my acquaintance leading a double life without my suspecting it. Every man leads a double life, and some more than that, Lizzie observed. I guess it rests, like it does me, to take off my corset. Miss Cornelia opened her mouth to rebuke her. But just at that moment, there was a clink of ice from the hall, and Billy the Japanese entered carrying a tray with a pitcher of water and some glasses on it. Miss Cornelia watched his impressive progress, wondering if the Oriental races ever felt terror. She could not imagine all Lizzie's banshees and kelpies producing a single shiver from Billy. He set down the tray and was about to go as silently as he had come when Miss Cornelia spoke to him on impulse. Billy, what's all this about the cook's sister not having twins? She said in an offhand voice. She had not really discussed the departure of the other servants with Billy before. Did you happen to know that this interesting event was anticipated? Billy drew in his breath with a polite hiss. Maybe she have twins, he admitted. It happens sometime, mostly not expected. Do you think there was any other reason for her leaving? Maybe, said Billy blandly. Well, what was the reason? I'll say same thing. House haunted. Billy's reply was prompt as it was calm. Miss Cornelia gave a slight laugh. You know better than that, though, don't you? Billy's oriental placidity remained unruffled. He neither admitted nor denied. He shrugged his shoulders. Funny house, he said laconically. Find window open, nobody there. Door slam, nobody there. On the heels of his words came a single, startling bang from the kitchen quarters. The bang of a slammed door. <laughs>